Yeah. All right, we're going to jump in. We're in Matthew 28 this morning, um, finishing out our series, ultimately walking through the Gospel of Matthew. We've been doing that uh, a little over a year now, and uh, we're going to be finishing that out um, this morning. I'd love to begin here. If there was a path uh, I would want us to forge over the next 20 years, so Ernie, give me a 20-year vision of where you hope and pray Sojourn is going and the path that you want to forge. I would say it's around seeing a movement of discipleship take place. Um, a movement of people who intentionally seek to follow Jesus. If there was anything I would want to see over the next 20 years in our community, it would be us becoming intentional, more intentional about following Jesus. Uh, what that would mean for our broader community if we uh, continued to become more serious about Jesus' kingdom and how we loved and how we were generous and how we showed mercy and how we extended justice and care and, and, and concern for those that were marginalized, how that would affect our broader community, us becoming more and more salty and brighter in this community, what that could do would be potentially astounding. There's no greater desire in my heart than to see lives transformed and our city renewed through people following Jesus. And the text that we're in this morning is going to be highlighting that in the end of uh, the Gospel of Matthew, talking about this discipleship movement. And so as we get into it, the very last few verses in Matthew 28, um, the context is really important because we've been kind of working towards this, uh, this final statement that Jesus makes We've walked through and we've seen Jesus been betrayed and him be beaten and put on a cross. And we saw this 160-pound body, this Jewish man laid in a tomb, lifeless. We've seen a Roman soldier put out front and a stone put over this little cave where Jesus, his dead body, was. We've experienced that. We've walked through that. We've considered potentially how uh, disciples, how they probably felt in seeing this take place, um, wondering probably, could we have done something different? You can imagine the thoughts that they had in their minds. How, how did it get to this point? Wondering, maybe everything that Jesus said was false if he's now dead in a tomb and the despair that potentially overtook them likely from this event. It went from hopes dashed to great despair. God is dead and Rome is one. That's what we leave in, as we come out of Matthew 27, but all of a sudden. And again, Easter Resurrection Day isn't just about last Sunday. We can talk about it again this Sunday. All of a sudden, sudden early Sunday morning, they catch winds with bags under their eyes, surely from a lack of sleep from those few days prior, they catch wind that he potentially is not in the tomb. And the Gospel of John colors this in a bit more, and he speaks about Peter and himself and how they sprint to the tomb after the women come to him, them and say that he's risen. And you can imagine they have tears in their eyes as they're sprinting and maybe hoping that this nightmare that they were having wasn't actually coming true. And they run to the tomb, wondering if, imagining the same, no way, there's no way. And they're running, figuring potentially he has now 
risen. And that takes us to Matthew 28 at the very end. And we have to understand that context, the the despair that they felt, and then them touching this king who has now swallowed death forever. And so the statements that Jesus is about to make have extra weight on them when you remember the context by which it's come from. And so Matthew 28, starting in verse 16, it says this, now the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. There, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you to the end of the age." It's a powerful last few verses that Matthew gives us here. And so uh, a few things I just want to uh, consider as we look at this. Verse 17, there's some, some special gems in this verse here. It says that when they saw him, they worshipped him. So Matthew, he has now bookended the beginning of his gospel in Matthew 2 and the end of his gospel in Matthew 28 with worship. In Matthew 2, if you recall, the Magi come and they worship this baby king. And then in Matthew 28, at the very end, this motley crew is now worshiping Jesus. Now, worship in our context might be a bit different than worship in their day. So let's get a little clarity here. When it says that they worshiped him, it's not that they were potentially glad to see him. Like worship in this day was serious. You only extend worship to the creator, the sustainer, the sovereign over all things. And so that's what they're doing in this moment. They are surrendering their lives to this resurrected king. And they're saying, you alone are the one worthy of my life. And they're extending this surrender to him. Surrender themselves to the resurrection king who held the keys of death. They worshiped this resurrected king. But it also says, and I really appreciate how Matthew includes this, that some doubted. It says some doubted. Can you just breathe deep if you have doubts? Can you just breathe deep and know that you're in uh, similar company and knowing that some of the disciples that even saw Jesus face to face found themselves doubting? Faith was never designed to be easy Faith was not designed to not have difficulties. It was not designed to not have hiccups. Life can be confusing. Life can be and will be troublesome. There's no journey of authentic faith without legit moments of doubting. It's a par for the course. God is not taken off guard by these doubts. The question is, what do we do when we doubt? Oftentimes when we see God as angry and frustrated. When we have moments of doubting, we run from him. We feel like we need to move away from him, figure our life out, put ourselves in time out, and then come back to him. But Jesus says, his first two words that he describes himself as, he says, I'm gentle and humble in heart. I think oftentimes in this this movement of deconstructionism and trying to figure out things and kind of figure out what is faith and what is true and a lot of postmodern thinking that's also relevant within and present within the church, oftentimes 
Um, there's this idea of, a, I'm going to deconstruct, but not unto reconstructing. And, and I believe that there's moments for doubting that can help us if we run to Jesus. And I believe that when we see Jesus as gentle and humble in heart, we can run to him with our doubts. And we don't have to run from him. We can run to him. Family, we are not a hospital of the strong and put together. We are a community that has doubts who sometimes don't understand why things happen in life. Our strength is not in our faith. Our strength is in the object of our faith. And so when we consider this text, it ought not to surprise us that the disciples doubted. That is a common reality within the church, and it's not us flexing, and that's why we come to church. It's in our weakness that we say that there's an object that we put our faith on, and he is our strength. Some doubted. See, this echoes hope for us that we are not alone. If you're going through seasons of doubt, it's okay to not be okay. It's okay to not have the answers, but we can trust and lean on the rock of Jesus. Continue to lean on him as you go through the fog and know that in time you will come out. It also reminds us of the credibility of the story. Just like in the earlier passage in Matthew 28, that the women were the first ones that were eyewitnesses of Jesus. That that brings credibility to the story in the same way here. There's this raw reality and it speaks to the authenticity of this moment. That there were, that if I'm writing this story, I'm not going to say that a bunch of people were doubting that Jesus rose from the dead. Right? We're going to try to create a, a perfect picture of what's happening. But Matthew's honest. And he says, yeah, there were some that worshipped and there were some that doubted. And it brings credibility to the nature of the resurrection. And so again, we see this text and how it provides clarity that some worshipped, some Doubted, and then Jesus gives these marching orders. Again, coming out of just rising from the dead, and he says, all authority has been given to me. Again, remember who he is, that he rules and reigns. He's the one who's triumphant. He's the one that will ultimately bring forth shalom. He holds the keys of death. And then he says, go and make disciples of all nations, as Josh mentioned earlier. And I want to specifically focus on this phrase, go and make disciples. And mention a few things related to that. This word, this phrase, go, it speaks to, it references uh, the God we serve as a missional God. Tim Keller tells us this. He says, God is a missional God. The Trinity is by nature sending. The Father sends the Son into the world to save it. And the Father and the Son send the Spirit into the world. And now the Spirit is sending the church to fulfill his purposes in the earth. The biblical God is a missionary God. So when it says go, that's from a context of the God whose nature is sending. I don't know about you, but for those who have families and maybe you grew up, you for sure grew up um, in families, whether they were hyper broken or just kind of broken, that had some level of values. And we kind of live from our values. And so one of the values that we have in our home is owning our mess. And so when we make mistakes, the wagoner way is to own it. It's not to justify, it's not to kind of turn it back on somebody else. If, if you've made a mistake, you're, um, we want to own it. And so Alex and I, my wife and I, we lead with that. So if I make a mistake, I'm going to say, guys, it's on me. And so the wagoner way would be that our kids also 
do that. And in the same way, as our father, who we've been adopted into his family, a value of the family of God is that he sins. And so if he sins, we go. It's the natural byproduct of being adopted into his family. It's the kingdom way of God, our Father. Just as he sent, so we, just as he is one who has sent his Son, sent the Spirit, so we are in his likeness, are ones who are sent. And so to go means that we're just a part of the family of God in that way. But go also is interesting because it, it exposes a, a, a mirror of sorts that we need to consider. You can't give what you don't have. So to go means that you have something to give. And so when it says, go and make disciples, there's an understanding that you are an active follower of Jesus so that you actually can give something that you have. You can't give what you don't have. So this commission isn't first about leaving, but first about looking in the mirror. Who are we following? If we are telling the world to follow someone we are not following, we're going to be exposed. In 2020, I believe that some of the church in America was exposed by who we were following. We weren't following Jesus, but following a political party or political leader. And go means that we are following Jesus. And it's Jesus who we are showing with our lives. Go means showing the world and teaching the world that there is a better master than our cultural framework, a better master than self-preservation. And so follow Jesus as I follow Jesus. That's what's implied here, and we can't miss that implication. That to go means that you have something to give, that you're actually allowing Christ to be formed in you so that you can actually give that. And if Christ is not being formed in you, then there's nothing that you can give. And so it's necessary when we hear go, let's allow that to become a mirror and say, do we have something to give? Are we following Jesus? It's a mirror. And then the third thing within this, uh, this phrase of go is that the Greek here isn't go, but as you go. There's this, uh, this understanding that as you're going, it's, it's an active in your going. And we need to recalibrate here. Honestly, COVID has separated us from people, right? And for right reasons. And, and I know that we're going to differ on how we should move forward. And that's another conversation that we'll never have here because that's not the point of the church. But the reality is that COVID has caused us to be separate from our neighbors. It's caused us to be separate from our coworkers. I mean, you probably don't even, haven't even seen some of your coworkers in the last year, right? Because a lot of us are virtual. And so things are a bit different now. And so we have to consider what life looks like here and now. We ought not to pause what this means, but we ought to be extra intentional on what this looks like. The design was that in our living, that we are going. That in our living, in our practical living, that we are being sent by our Father who has a value of going. When we compartmentalize our faith into I, I do kind of my evangelism here, but then I have my life here, it gets really confusing. But when you understand that you are sent and as you're going... As you're living in your neighborhood, as you're working, as you're investing into the school of your children, as you're living that you are being sent. It's in your going on a practical level that you are being sent. And that's true whether you're here in East Cobb or you're in Putna, India. Like regardless of where you are, as you're going, you are being intentional with the gospel. 
And over time, I think that the church has, has done less going and more kind of inviting people into the worship experience. Come to my church and kind of listen to the pastor who does this stuff, and we've kind of bowed out, and we've kind of lost the muscle of what it looks like to, as you go into the world, make disciples. And we need to recalibrate on what that looks like. Tim Keller goes on, he says, no longer see the church service as primarily connecting people with those outside the community. Connecting with those outside happens within the culture by insiders to that culture who express the gospel through how they live. In other words, the goal isn't to just pull people and say, come to church. The goal is to be those that are a part of the church family who go into the world and as you live your life, showcase Christ and how he's permeating your life in the life of interacting with them. It's an active presence in our culture. It's to go. Again, it is impossible to make disciples if you are not first a disciple. So we want to forge a discipleship movement. Over the next 20 years, we want to see a discipleship movement take place both here and globally and planting churches. What does that actually mean? We must ask what is a disciple? Because we can have, we can move on and kind of talk about practicals, how we do that. But if we don't have uh, clarity on what discipleship looks like, we're going to miss a lot along the way. Discipleship means different things to different people. For some, it's one-on-one uh, Bible study. When you think of discipleship, it's one-on-one Bible study. And maybe uh, for others, it's, it's mentorship. You go through a book with someone that's maybe older than you. For others, it's leadership development learning kind of tricks of the trade to try to be a better leader. And all those are good, but those are not discipleship. They are what they are, but when we say discipleship, we oftentimes import meaning, meaning into that word that's not actually accurate. Discipleship in the first century is, is where we must go to get a better understanding of what this means to make disciples. So in the first century, the discipleship was the apex Jewish educational system. This was a common phrase that was used in the first century that we've kind of lost the weight of today. And so let's go back and kind of remember what it was. It was the Jewish apex educational system. So there was three levels. The first level was this um, grade school. And so if you were to be a disciple, you had to at minimum go through this school and you would learn the Torah. I'm not just saying you read through uh, Genesis through Deuteronomy uh, once, but you memorize those first five books of the Bible. You're like, Leviticus? I'm like, Leviticus. Like, you're memorizing this, okay? You've not just read through it. Man, I read through it, and you, like, check it off. Like, you've actually memorized this set of scripture. That was tier one at minimum prerequisite. And then second tier is that the best of the best moved on to the second level, which was the house of learning. And you learn from a full-time paid teacher. And they would learn most, if not all, of the Old Testament. And so that was just a part of the package. To be a part of this discipleship relationship with a rabbi, you would learn not just the Torah, but you would learn the prophets. You would learn the wisdom literature. You would learn it all. This was a par for the course, but there was more. And so you have tier one, you're learning the Torah. Tier two, you're not just learning the Torah, but you're learning from a rabbi and you're learning the whole Old Testament. And then third, the best of the best of the best, the elite, get an interview with the rabbi. You get interrogated. And if you are smart enough, you have enough drive, you have enough talent, he would say, come and follow me. 
And so you're not just learning from the Torah, you're not just learning from the Old Testament, you're actually going to follow the rabbi. And that is discipleship, that you become connected hip to hip with the rabbi. And for the next years and years, you become his apprentice. And you, you are with him, you become like him, and you do exactly what he does. That was the context of discipleship in Jesus' day. And what Jesus did, so, so to become an apprentice with the rabbi, you would be with him, you would become like him, and you would do what he does. And so your goal was to become a carbon copy of the rabbi. And Jesus, is, Jesus flips the system on its head. And he doesn't just invite the elite. He doesn't just invite the brightest. Praise God, right? He doesn't just invite the ones who have it all together, who know all the right things. If you read through the Gospels, you find that he invites a motley crew of people. A ragtag group of folks, many that were uneducated. And he invited them to be his disciples, to be with him, to become like him, and to do what he did. And so when Jesus says, go and make disciples of all nations, he's saying much more than what we give him credit to say, that he's saying. He's saying, I want to see a movement of discipleship take place all over the world where people are being with me, becoming like me, and doing what I did. So the goal is, again, being with him, to, to follow him, to eat the way he ate, to be covered in his dust, to be connected, to abide with him, to be with him, to become like him in his actions and his motives and his hopes, to be shaped by the fruit that he gives us from the inside out, to become like Jesus and then to do what he did. To, he, just like he sent out his disciples, that he sends us to now do the things that he did, to engage the world as he has. Our, actually, we're doing a series starting next week called Gospel Human Flourishing, and it has a lot to do with doing what Jesus did, that we are called to be that and do that in our world. So when Jesus says, go and make disciples, what he's not saying is go get a bunch of people to pray a prayer and then check it off. That's not what he said. He's not saying the goal is to just give people a get out of hell free card. It's so much more than that. It was an invitation to have your life and my life shaped and transformed by following him here and now and then inviting others to do the same. It's recognizing that eternity doesn't just start when we die. It's eternity starts here and now as we follow Jesus to be an apprentice, a disciple, to follow him. Go and make disciples. Here's the deal. If we are all, we are all discipled by something or someone. Our culture, our political preferences, our dreams, our aspirations, something is forming us, something is shaping us. And the question is, is that something or someone the kingdom of Jesus? We are all called to make disciples, but it must begin by us asking the question, who are we following? Jesus is sending his disciples into the world to disciple people into his ways, into his practices, under his lordship, through his redeeming work on the cross. And he's inviting us to invite the world into a new way of life, into rethinking how you find value and purpose and identity. And in our discipleship, we baptize 
He says baptizing. So this is an outward declaration of an inward reality. And so we've been trying to figure out how to navigate through um, baptisms and COVID and having multiple services. And so what we're, we decided that we're going to do is we're doing it and working with people's families. And it's been pretty complicated, if I can be honest with you. But we, we've landed that on May 2nd, we're going to do baptisms outside after our second service. And then after we're going to video those and then we're going to watch them the following week, which will be Mother's Day, which will be awesome. And so that's how we're rolling with baptisms. And so this is a outward declaration of what Jesus has done in our lives. And so if you're a follower of Jesus and you've chosen to follow Jesus and he's made your heart new, then we say be baptized. It's a part of what it looks like to follow Jesus. And then to teach them how to follow. Jesus says, go and make disciples, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teach them to observe all that I've commanded you. Teach them what it looks like to follow me. And if we are known for anything, I want us to be known as a people who want to follow Jesus. That's it. Nothing more. In the next 20 years, I want to see us become a a church who is seriously following Jesus and let the chips fall where they will from there. That's success in my mind. If we plant 10 churches from there, awesome. If we plant one, awesome. The goal would be to see a people follow Jesus. Jesus. That's what he's told us. Go and make disciples. See a discipleship movement. So practically, first thing, again, you can't produce what you don't have. So are you following Jesus? Are you following Jesus? Is he forming your life? Is he shaping you? Is his fruit coming forth from within? It's a question that only you can answer, but it's a question we must ask. Because we can't give what we don't have. Are you following, submitting to, surrendering yourself more and more to the reign of Jesus in your life? With your kids, with your money, with your future, with your career, with your life. Are you surrendering yourself to follow Jesus? There's no greater freedom, truly, than relinquishing control of your life and allowing yourself to come under his lordship and following him. We can't give what we don't have. Secondly, remember that you are sent into your world. Not just the world, because we can kind of lose the impact of what we're invited into here and now. You are called to be sent into your world. And so if it's Patrick and Joy Bannock, they are sent into their world in Bangkok, Thailand. If it's you working where you work, then it's you being sent into the world where you are. To your world, specific people who are dealing with loneliness and isolation, who are hurting, who are seeking the hollow hole of pleasure. And you have an opportunity to show them with your life and to share with them what it looks like to follow Jesus. I promise you, most people have a picture of who Jesus is that's not accurate. Most people in the Bible Belt think they know Jesus and have no clue who this resurrected Jesus is. They have a muted, sad view of Jesus. And he is so much kinder than they realize. He's so much more humble than they realize. He is so much more gentle than what they realize. He he invites them to so much more than just a bunch of don'ts. Don't do this, don't do this, don't do that. He invites us into life. 
the letting go of the control that, that is crushing us and providing anxiety to our souls, we have an opportunity to not just share about a muted view of Jesus, but a resurrected, powerful Jesus is the freedom to free us from the pains of this world. Remember, you were sent into your world. Don't forget it. If you are following Jesus, you can't avoid this reality. Again, I'm, I'm kind of going over, but I feel really good about that. <laughs> I think that we, we have this kind of understanding in our heads of um, there's kind of two-tiered Christianity. One is like I prayed the prayer and I kind of just lived the minimum. And then there's these people that are like serious about following Jesus. Like that's not in the Bible. Like we're called to follow Jesus. That is the way of the kingdom of Jesus. And it's what Jesus is inviting us into. Remember, you've been sent because you have a family that you've been adopted into and your father in heaven is a missional God. Third, third practical thing. Again, first, for those who are like, wow, was there, were there two before? Yes. Uh, can't produce what you don't have. Remember that you are sent into your world. And lastly, as a church, we will continue to move forward in this regard. We've created, uh, we're continuing to create workshops that I believe will be really helpful for us practically. We have one coming up in June for our families to help our parents uh, grow in discipling your kids. What does that look like practically? When life is crazy and sports are every day of the week, it seems, and what does it look like to help disciple your children? Well, we're going to walk through that uh, in, in, in June. We have, uh, there's a rule of life workshop that we did a few uh, months ago. It's, uh, it should be a URL up here, potentially sojournonline.org slash workshop. Um, that it's, it, it, we don't need that. Um, but just to remind you, sojournonline.org slash workshop. And so this was a really practical workshop that we did a, a few months ago. And just learning practically what it looks like to follow Jesus with our lives. And so if that's something that you want to grow and you missed that workshop, then we have that for you, sojournonline.org slash workshop. We want to continue as a church to pray about the horizon of planting churches. We want to continue to invest into our cross-cultural workers in Putna and in Bangkok. We want to be a community who takes seriously the words of Jesus here, to follow Jesus, both locally and globally. This all-powerful king has called us to be disciples who make disciples. And if there was a path I would want us to forge over the next 20 years, it would be to help forge a discipleship movement, a movement of people who intentionally seek to follow Jesus. I want to do that with you guys. I want to follow Jesus with you guys. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, it is our prayer that you would teach us what this looks like. We don't want to settle for a version of Christianity that's pray the prayer and then live your life. Lord, we don't want to settle for that. We want to follow Jesus. I pray you'd help us. Thank you that you didn't leave us as orphans. You sent us the helper, the spirit the counselor, to guide us and lead us. And I pray that you would. I pray that you would help us. Lord, for some of my friends this morning who come with doubts, Lord, I ask you to provide comfort and peace. Thank you that you're kind and you lead us through the valley of the shadow of death. 
And Lord, for all of us, for those that just need a, um, a bit of conviction that would draw us afresh to you, Lord, I pray you'd help us. For those that have maybe settled, Lord, I pray that you would help us to recalibrate. Thank you that you are gentle, you're humble, and you're kind, and it's your kindness, not your anger. It's your kindness that leads us to repentance. Lord, move in our midst. Lord, I pray that you would awaken a discipleship movement in this community. That we would be a people who follow you. In Jesus' name, amen. If you want to grab in the baskets in your aisles, we got some communion cups. And those communion cups are a wafer and some juice. This is the best we can offer for this sacred sacrament that we're going to partake in together in one minute. Um, So get those ready, but don't partake yet. I want to begin by taking some space to confess, to consider, man, are there areas in your life, intentionally or unintentionally, you just need to reset on? Man, you, you find yourself just become numb to all things related to the kingdom of Jesus. I invite you, Jesus invites you to reset. He invites you to turn your heart, to reset upon him and his kingdom. It's a gift to have this moment of confession, to simply turn your heart to Christ, to God, our Father, who loves you and cares for you. Let's begin there, and then we'll enter into the time of communion.